Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Because as much as it doesn't feel like it in our world today, when we look around, when we live every day, when things look really bleak, particularly globally, what what Isaiah heard from God in this time of worship, in this time of incredible encounter where God revealed his heart for the world, what he heard was that everything is going to be okay in the end. Kind of seems ridiculous saying that, doesn't it? When we think of everything that is going on in the world at the moment, to really be hopeful. That word hopeful just seems like it's kind of pie in the sky thinking that maybe it will happen. No, no, no. We can have hope in the name of our God. So today we're going to look at another passage after last week where we just got an idea of the magnitude and the power of the God that we worship. Another passage that held incredible hope for the people of Israel, which is Isaiah, is chapter 53. And if you've been around church long enough, you know this one, or I knew this one, because of that um, famous worship song that used to go like this. We like sheep have gone astray. Anybody? Just just me? It comes in that famous kind of school of worship songs where all the words are just way too long. Like that one Martin Smith wrote, which just goes, Great is the Lord. Get on with it. We get the idea. And if you're new around to Central and to church, then I've completely lost you and you feel really ostracized and you wish that you'd never come. But you're welcome here just as much. You got to hear me sing, so don't complain. Isaiah 53, it's not an isolated passage, even though we can take it as meaning just one thing for us, and we'll unpack that a bit later. But actually, this vision that Isaiah had plays an integral part of the big story of God's people. There's something stirring at this time in history when Isaiah hears God. We heard it last week that God is beginning to speak new things, new promises. He comes alongside and he says, I am going to make everything new again. God is in the business of restoring hope in the darkest of places. It's not just like a part-time hobby. It's not just something he does from time to time. That's who he is. He is a restorer of hope. But the original design of God's people living in God's presence, worshipping the temple, in God's plans and his purposes, i.e. in the land that he'd given them, everything had gone to pot when Isaiah heard this vision. And the Israelites, they find themselves in a foreign land in Babylon without really anything to take solace in until God speaks. Because we were designed to live under the kingship of God. 
to rule alongside God like princesses and princes and to see his kingdom stretch out before us and the whole world to come into contact with God's peace and his goodness. But they find themselves in a completely different spot, in exile, taken away from everything that they hold dear, their identity and the land that they've been promised since Abraham. They find themselves here not just hopeless, but also homeless. So we're going to get stuck into the passage, and I've asked just um, Naomi to come and read it to us, so you can have this mic back. It's Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, 
because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thanks very much. We pray. Holy Spirit, you're present with us already. You've been speaking to to lots of us already, just reminding us um, who you are. Just been encouraging some of our hearts already. And we just pray um, that's the story of this evening. We might feel encouraged because we are aligned with you, the God of the angel armies. The God... um, for whom nothing is impossible. The God who loves us because he loves us, because he loves us, and he loves us amazingly and faithfully. Holy Spirit, come and speak as we spend time in your word this evening. Amen. Amen. What an incredible passage um, we get to to spend time in tonight. Um, We've heard about... A righteous servant on one hand, and we've heard about a crushed servant. We've heard about a perfect servant who was also cut off from the land of the living. We've heard about disobedient sheep and a slaughtered lamb. And we've heard about a selfish people and a justified people. So who do we identify with tonight? At the end of the chapter before, um, 53 and 52, it says just these three words, see my servant, as it kind of introduces this passage here. See my servant. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. So who is this mysterious character that Isaiah is speaking about? At other times in Isaiah's prophecies, um, the word servant can often mean to Isaiah himself. um, But it's pretty clear from what we know about Isaiah's life that this isn't about him. It certainly wasn't me, Thomas Dean, because it says there is no beauty to attract us to him. So that's one of us ruled out. Um, And a lot of people believe that this passage is talking about the nation of Israel that was preparing to suffer under the power of their oppressors. That this was preparing the nation of Israel for what was going to happen in Babylon. And there might be something in that, but I don't think we really need to get our knickers in too much of a twist this evening. Because Jesus interprets this passage himself. So later in in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said these words. He said, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he went on to quote that passage. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That he was identified as one who was cut off. And he wanted to say, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now, this is where it gets a little bit awkward because actually um, 
I'm doing a theology degree, okay? I'm, I'm a bit of a big deal at the moment, doing a theology degree. And um, I've studied the Bible, and I've discovered that Jesus didn't actually have a theology degree. He never went to uni, never did any of this stuff. So normally, I'd call rank, and I'd say, well, Jesus, you know, come on. But for this time, I'm going to go with his interpretation on the passage of Isaiah. So he says, I am the servant. And it's really easy for us here because he just spells it out. I am the servant. I am the fulfillment to Isaiah's vision that comes right in the midst. As we heard before we read the passage, it comes right in the midst of God announcing a plan to bring his people back to him. Jesus announces to the world that he's going to bring about restoration to the nation of Israel. And as God reveals the vision to Isaiah, Isaiah sees this servant, but not any servant, a servant that has been cut off, a servant that has been rejected, not a servant happily working away in the master's quarters, but a servant that has been cast out and is alone. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. It doesn't get much worse than that, really. What happened when Jesus showed up? We despised him. We hated him. It wasn't supposed to be like that, was it? It was supposed to look a bit different. God, we, we, they knew, we know, God is coming to rule one day. And he's supposed to have a crown, at least have a crown. Or Luke can talk a little bit more eloquently and wear sunglasses like Bono or something like that. You know, have the eloquence of Barack Obama and the leadership skills of Hillary Clinton. I don't know if she's got leadership skills, but I'm guessing she does. They were expecting someone for sure. The chapter again beforehand, it says, when the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes and they will burst into songs of joy together. They cannot wait to meet the Savior, the one who's going to make everything all right, the one who's going to restore the land back to them as they wait in misery, in exile. But classic God, he's at it again. He uses the unexpected to change the world. He uses the unexpected to change the world. And and a little side note, that is the cool thing about the church. Because actually, you can look around you if you want. The guys from upstairs can look down at the guys downstairs. We are basically the church, a bunch of no-hopers, a bunch of people that don't bring our own A-games with us, a bunch of guys that fail and flounder who God places his hope and his spirit in the middle of and has a plan to change the world through. We walk in the footsteps of the greatest servant because he set the way of depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't have picked this servant, despised and rejected, in your sports team. He would have been the last person just desperately waving, kind of, pick me, no. He wouldn't be the person you choose to invest in your leadership team. He, he wouldn't, we wouldn't have him preaching. We wouldn't have him leading worship here at Central. You can bet your bottom dollar. There was nothing about him that is attractive in the world's eyes. But yet he's the one who turns the whole story on its head. 
We rejected him, Barabbas rejected him, the religious leaders of the day, the guys that were waiting for him rejected him. You rejected him, I've rejected him. We've never been the type of people that really wanted this type of servant savior. We wanted Hercules, we wanted Maximus Meridius, we wanted Steve Jobs, he would have done. We gave him one look and we thought no. And our rejection of the Messiah, coupled with God's unstoppable love, is kind of just the beginning of this story of incredible hope rising from despair. For hope to take place and begin, there was an exchange that needed to take place. Israel, Israel, they were miserable, they were less human than they were supposed to be. Something had to give. They couldn't live forever outside the presence and the plans of God. And this exchange had to happen personally. Isaiah explains it like this. He said, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. And maybe you don't feel like a sheep tonight. But we have chased after our own gods. We have chased after idols, things that are not from God that we try and get satisfaction from. We've pursued and sought satisfaction almost in everything but God. And we've turned away from the God of life and the punishment that we deserved. And and the kind of only thing that makes sense is, is that we would be separated from him the more we cho- you chose idols and we chose to live apart from him. And separation from the God of life is death. And we can't accept anything until we realize or even just get a, a small grasp on our brokenness and our sinfulness and our disobedience. We are not the creatures that we were intended to be. We are not living in the relationship that we were supposed to have. It doesn't take long to realize that when you read the papers. It doesn't take long to realize that if you look at yourself hard enough in the mirror. But yet these words come in the middle of that. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity, the immorality, the sinfulness of us all. Jesus had seen the way we rejected him. He sees the way that we do reject him, but he took our punishment all the same. He wasn't oblivious to what was going on around him. He was human and he felt the insults of those who around him. He heard them, he felt the bruises and the nails, but still he set his face towards the cross. It doesn't really seem fair, does it? An innocent son taking the punishment for something that he never even did. How does that work? How does that work in light of the cosmos and these grand themes of justice and morality? And how does it work alongside just our father who knows us and created us for relationship with him because he loves us? Well, here's a few things that I've heard. Maybe it's kind of like a judge and you're in court and and the judge doesn't just let you off the hook but then he goes and stands in your place and takes your punishment. Maybe you've heard that before because there's kind of a moral code that needs to be adhered to. 
Or maybe it's kind of like um, you're playing in a football game and you get really, really tired and you know that you're just never going to win the game. And so Jesus comes on, trots on, puts his boots on, and he kind of takes your place as a substitute. He comes on, scores a hat-trick, and you win kind of the league, the cup, and the World Cup all in one game because he's Jesus. Or maybe it's kind of like that Greek myth that you've heard of. Maybe it's kind of like that pagan story that you heard of. Maybe it's kind of like Frodo in the ring. Or maybe it's kind of just what it is. Just this incredible love story of the God who made us, bringing us back home. Where 3,000 years ago, hope was spoken. Where 2,000 years ago, hope arrived and was crucified. We were in a conditional relationship with God. And when we turned away, we had to make up the difference. And even that was by grace. Through sacrifices, through lambs, and through ceremonies. But in terms of exile, there was a direct consequence for the actions of the people of God. After a while, God said, I can't handle this anymore. You need to go somewhere else. Maybe you're familiar with the whole conditional relationship thing. Where you have an action that's followed by a consequence. Maybe some of us here are married. The action is you leave the toilet seat up. The consequence is you sleep on the sofa. At school, um, I grew up in school. I grew up in school. I grew up in Glasgow. I did spend a lot of time at school. I did actually. I, had to, I went to a specialist music school and I had to stay from basically half eight until seven in the evening to do extra music lessons. What's all that about? Yeah, turned out fairly normal, so it's okay. Anyway, grew up in Glasgow. At school, you taught once, it's a punny. It's a punishment exercise, translation. You taught twice, get out, get out of the classroom. It's my best Glaswegian accent tonight. An action and a consequence. Or let's take it to the next level, where I'll tell you a little story about... um, me and uh, my elder brother Jonathan, where we were just playing football in the hall in Glasgow, as you do, just brothers hanging out, having a good time, enjoying our younger years. Um, Something went wrong, and we um, broke, I say we, he took the shot, he scored the goal, I say we, it was him, we broke my great aunt Nellie's kind of Ming China umbrella stand that she had given to my parents as a wedding gift. In fact, Jonathan is up at the back there. You can just turn around and just kind of go, shame. (laughs) Shame. I see you. And what happened was, I'd been given a special gift earlier that day of 20 pounds. And I think I was about seven or eight years old, which is the equivalent of basically winning the Euro millions. (laughs) What happened was that I had to surrender my 20 pounds to make propitiation for Jonathan's misdemeanors. That's taken it to the next level. And I know that unsurprisingly, my role in that story is quite similar to the role of Jesus, but that's just coincidental. (laughs) That's another way of thinking about standing in the gap. But, But bigger than that, even, this love story is a mystery. It is a story of love. It is a story of God Offering himself as the only way out because all the other options had been exhausted. A a brokenness 
leading to restoration. Restoration of the magnitude that I'm not sure we'll ever be able to comprehend apart from this, apart from joining in in a song. A song that is going on right now. You can't hear it, or maybe some of you can, where there's angels and there's elders and there's these kind of bizarre-looking living creatures that are just worshipping Jesus and they're singing these three words, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's a story of ordinary people like you and me being welcomed into freedom, being welcomed into the Father's house, having an opportunity to say yes to Jesus, having an opportunity to say yes to that invitation. And we'll make some space to say yes now, later on. Here's what happened in the story. When they came to the place called the Skull, just outside Jerusalem. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other one on the left, with Jesus in the middle. And Jesus said these words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Every selfish thought, every malicious act, Every time we turn and look for satisfaction elsewhere, he took it on himself. What incredible mercy. Our punishment avoided. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. What we deserved, we didn't get. We ignored God. We went further. We crucified him. We ran away from his purposes, his plans, but we got mercy and we got pardoned. And in a world where increasingly anything goes, you've just got to be yourself and you've just got to kind of try stuff. And, and if it feels good, then there's always going to be a way of justifying it. Our sin is a real thing. Our separation from God had to be dealt with. A transaction had to take place. Jesus came to uphold the law and not just abolish it. But... Instead of collapsing in grief over our rejection, he bears our griefs. Instead of increasing our sorrows like we deserved, he carries our sorrows himself. Instead of avenging our transgressions, he has pierced for them in our place. And instead of crushing us for iniquities, he is crushed for them as our substitute. Jesus had a cousin Um, called John the Baptist and the first time John the Baptist ever saw Jesus he just said look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Jesus is the promise answered he is the fulfillment to the vision of hope that Isaiah saw and a relationship that had always been conditional began to look like love was becoming uncontainable and unstoppable and the unconditional covenant that truly represented God's love and commitment to the world was slowly edging into view for the people of Israel and is now full-flung for us to see this invitation. This invitation to live without guilt, to give away instead of holding 
tight and to learn to live with God's heart. Take a deep breath, everyone. I've been pretty heavy so far. You can do that. Let's just exhale slowly. Okay. Um, Neil, could we get that photo, please? That'd be great. So, yesterday I was just minding my own business, just having a nice, relaxed Saturday, and, and, and I had a friend. Um, can you just give me a little wave if you've ever had an upgrade on a flight? Look at them. Just look at them. Look how smug they look. <laughs> Pleased with themselves. All the ones in the really smart clothes. We can see you. So I had this text from my friend called Harry, just casually texting me saying, business class is sick. And, um, and for those of you kind of under 27, I'm going to kind of pitch it there. Sick means good. So it doesn't mean that he's feeling unwell. He means, a kind of translation is, business class is great. That's kind of a translation for you older guys like, like me. Yeah. Um, and Harrison had received an upgrade. Um, I've never had an upgrade. Every, everyone's always posting on Facebook, kind of, can't believe it, I got upgraded again. It's so good, I know the air hostess. And I'm kind of like liking it on Facebook, but inside, I'm fuming. I'm incensed with jealousy. It is so unfair. Hashtag first world problems. I never get upgraded. And I'm beginning to, to think that it might have something to do with the fact that I look like a student who is in denial that he graduated in 2009 and has permanently lost his razor. The one time that I did try really hard to look smart, kind of dressed up in my glad rags, really nice smile to the, uh, to the attendant, um, I didn't get an upgrade. Instead, um, in a kind of little block of three seats. I sat beside a newly married couple, got married the day before, which was lovely, just the two of them and me. (laughs) On the way to my gap year in New Zealand. So we had 23 hours together of kissing and canoodling and just going over how the wedding was. And it was a huge success, so that was lovely. Here's where the tenuous link comes in. You don't do anything, really, to deserve an upgrade. We didn't deserve this mercy, but we got mercy. And then God lavished his goodness on us, and we became a people of grace. Hallelujah. How about that for an upgrade? Grace upon grace upon grace, even better than mercy, he has lavished us with good things. He has just been so incredibly generous in the way that he has blessed his people because, oh my goodness, we did not deserve it. We do not deserve it. For Jesus bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He gave us good things. And this exchange then took place where we weren't just let off the hook, but we were given the most amazing gifts. And and guys, get this stuff. You might think that we have worship, and then we have like a talk, and then we have worship again. But I'm going to just read you a little bit about God's grace. And just take the opportunity in, in your mind, in your heart, just to say thank you to him. Because where he was chastised, we were given peace. Peace 
that can permeate our hearts and help us to live every day. And, and where he experienced separation, we received a spirit of adoption. That means we never need to feel like we're alone. And where Jesus was wounded, we received healing in our souls and also in our bodies. We sometimes get given a foretaste of his coming kingdom and we get healed. And where Jesus became homeless, he blessed us with his righteousness. And he was abandoned and we were embraced. He was disfigured. But for us, his church, and individually, he is making us more and more beautiful by placing his spirit inside of us. That's how amazing this grace is. That's how generous our God is. You've never heard or seen anything like it, and you never will. This grace will transform you from the inside and you will never be the same again if you let him give it to you. Think back to the people outside the plans and purposes of God. What did it mean for them? Because there's more than, than just our personal kind of lives and more than our personal sin that's going on here yes it is about when you hurt that person and you were forgiven for it immediately because of Jesus what has done for you yes it is about when you steal that last cookie from the jar and somebody says did you take it and you say no I didn't it is about that stuff but it's also bigger than that because we get wholeness we get restoration because God is restoring everything He is making all things new. That's his plan, and we get included in that. We, you, get included in that. We get kind of swept along in this tidal wave of mercy and grace. And he is making everything new. He's bringing back the whole world eventually into his presence, back into his plans. The people of God were banished. They had no hope The best way I can kind of think about it is like the worst recession you can imagine times a hundred because their whole identity was wrapped in the religion that they were part of, the God that they worshipped and the land that he'd given them. Do you know what it feels to feel hopeless? I do. I'm an Aston Villa fan. We're going down this season and there's nothing I can do to stop it. Imagine your whole identity was taken from you. And then God speaks. He says, I'm making a way, literally for these guys through the desert, to bring you guys back home because I love you. And he accomplished this through this incredible act of love. The people of God brought into the plans of God by the unconditional love and grace of God our Father. And Carl mentioned this a little bit last week but you know that the real disconnect that we have to grapple with and the real challenge that we face as today's church is individually when when the debt has been paid and we have the invitation sitting in our inbox to grace-filled lives to transformation but we decide to stick around in exile we decide to stick around in the home that we built 
in Babylon. Because you know Babylon's okay, isn't it? You can kind of get everything you need in Babylon. You can kind of do what you want when you want. It's quite easy. There's nothing too challenging in Babylon. You're not compelled to kind of have to live in the light and the presence of God that makes you feel quite uncomfortable at times, actually. Maybe not. However, you think about it, when you're still living in Babylon, you're still living in slavery. On the cross, an amazing gift was offered, but we still have to choose whether we dive into this kind of wave of God's mercy and grace, or we just live life just waiting for something, just watching on from the sidelines, just kind of recording it on our phones. You know, it's all too easy for us to do the maths, you can do your kind of atonement theology, you can do your long division, and you can marvel at how cool it was that the prophecy was fulfilled a thousand years later, and the debt was paid and the lamb was slain, but do you know what? You're still living outside of God's presence, because you haven't really received the gift of grace, of transformation, and my encouragement to you tonight is don't be that guy. Just say yes. Just say yes. Maybe it's hard for us to get really vulnerable about the things that we think stop us from entering into his presence. But actually, look at the cross. Look at the cross and just accept that it's done and that it's finished. And just look at the life. Life to the full that he has promised, that he has made available to you. Maybe it's kind of helpful to think about it like a a death row sentence where you've been pardoned by the judge and he says, okay, you're free to go and you accept his verdict, but you say, actually, I'm just going to hang around the prison for a few more years. Maybe I was thinking 20, 30 years. I could just hang around here for a bit longer if that's cool with you. Maybe it's like we've got kind of the most incredible, lavish, banquet prepared for us but we decide that we're just going to sit there and have a nice chat and not get stuck into the most amazing food that we could ever have tasted the Christmas presents are under the tree but all we want to do is sit in the lounge and watch EastEnders I can't think of a better analogy than that Paul wrote a letter um, to the church in Philippi and he had this just incredible accomplishment that just totally hits on the head where we can be at times. And he just said, take hold of that which Christ accomplished for you. Just grasp it, just take hold of it. It's, It's closer than you think. It's so near, it's so amazing that why wouldn't you take hold of that which Christ accomplished for you. And then, after that, just become this gift of grace and hope. Just embody it. That's our role as the church today. Just be hope together in the world. Be light. Because when restoration is our shared history and we know where God has brought us from and we know what God has done and placed in us, then restoration as we move forward becomes our priority. That we want to get involved in God's plan to bring all things back to him. That that is kind of the reason we exist. So maybe you came here and you didn't really know why you existed, but you knew that you loved Jesus. Well, that's it. 
You exist to get involved in God's plan to make everything new again and bring hope into a world that so desperately needs it. And whether that is, you know, in missional communities, whether that is just blessing people with your friendship and your conversation, whether that is selling everything you have and moving somewhere else, I don't know. But are you ready to become that gift of hope to the world? All you have to do is just accept this free gift of grace and accept the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside, alongside, guiding us. Okay. Okay. Should we stand? If we can, if you'd like to. Guys, you want to come? This is it, really. Um, God is calling us home. God is calling us home where we've been wandering, where we've been placing our hope in other things, where we've been trying to fix it or just make it work by ourselves. He's saying, come on home. I've made a way for you. I've prepared a feast for you. And I'm not talking about just coming home on Sundays, but home is where sons and daughters live learning to walk in the footsteps of mum and dad. And I just want to share this verse um, from, from 52, Isaiah 52. And I wonder whether this could be a prayer um, for why we exist as a church here in Central, why we exist as a church here in Scotland. It says this, you want to pray it with me. How, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation and who say to the world that our God reigns. Should we pray together? Maybe before even I kind of lead us in prayer together, why don't you just say thank you to God if that's something you want to do. Let's make space for that. That you died in our place, Jesus. You took on our punishment so that we could know peace with the Father. And maybe there's stuff we just need to hand over to him again. And maybe you would just want to have that image of him on the cross. That releases us into freedom. Actually, we just kneel at the foot of the cross and say, whatever guilt, whatever shame it is that I've been holding onto, that has been stopping me from being free as I live, I remember that you died once and for all. And that you call me up into freedom. Whether that's stuff that we're struggling with in terms of addiction. Maybe it's stuff that we're anxious about. 
that we've been making more important than our relationships with God. Maybe you want to give our, our hopes and dreams to him again and say, God, use me. Would you kind of beautify my feet and send me out again? And Holy Spirit, we welcome you. And um, this morning what we did was just as a sign that we're ready to receive the gifts of God was just we held our hands out in front of us. I receive your healing, God. I receive your mercy and your grace, God. I receive your life. Maybe the world around us and just our own lives have been places of darkness recently. I receive your light. And God, we ask you, um, don't hold anything back from us. We want everything that you have. We want to be your people set on fire so that this nation can be drawn back to you. We want to carry your message of hope into the world around us. We want to be transformed by your love. just keep asking God to speak to you just keep handing over the stuff that you feel might have been weighing you down back to him his purpose and plan for you is that you might live not carrying that stuff around with you because he has taken it on himself his purpose for you is that you have a vision of how you can be involved in restoring all things back to him His purpose for you is that you might just know him. Might just know this all-surpassing love. And yeah, just the final thing that we'll kind of pray about is just for those of us who, um, who feel like we don't know him, whether we call ourselves Christians or not, doesn't really matter. But actually, maybe we've been calling ourselves Christians for ages, but we were like, I don't feel like I have a relationship with you, God. I don't feel like I walk um, in the power of the Holy Spirit every day. And you can just say, come, Lord Jesus. I accept you into my life. Maybe some of you never really come across um, just the person of Jesus. Maybe you've never come across um, the fact that actually everything might not be okay in the way that um, you've been living, in the way that you've been thinking about your life. We'd love to share more and more about Jesus. We'd love for you to, to be part of this family. But um, you can also say yes to Jesus as he is here with us tonight by his spirit, speaking and moving and guiding, reminding Let's just keep receiving, shall we? And the guys are going to lead us um, in worship for a while.